This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. Scripture teaches us that prayer is essential for sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17, Paul says simply, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't defend his exhortation. He just says it. I take it that, for Paul, it is self-evident that prayer is so basic to the Christian life that he doesn't have to elaborate. In the 1563 Heidelberg Catechism, question 116, the Reformed churches confess, that prayer is necessary for Christians because it is the chief part of thankfulness, which God requires of us, and because God will give His grace and Holy Spirit only to those who earnestly and without ceasing beg them of Him and render thanks unto Him for them. The Presbyterian churches agree. Westminster Confession 14.1 says, The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe, to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. Scripture teaches, and the Reformed churches confess, the centrality of prayer to the Christian life. But recognizing that truth, saying that truth, and grappling honestly with it are different things. Here to talk with us about the role of prayer in the Christian life is Charles Telfer, Assistant Professor of Biblical Languages at Westminster Seminary, California. He's a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's been a missionary. He's a dad and a husband. Hi, Charles, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Well, let's start with the basics. We're talking about prayer and its relationship to the Christian life. So, what is prayer? Well, if the Christian life is all about a relationship, that God is establishing a relationship with us, his people, through Christ, then prayer is part of that relationship. It's our expressing ourselves to God, both in adoring him for who he is, recognizing just how majestic he is and how awesome and how merciful, what a great father and what a great provider he is for us, in confessing our sins before him, when we see our failings and our stumblings and our rebellions against him, confessing that and asking his forgiveness in Christ. In, of course, thanking him for the mercies that he gives us day by day and his provision for us and what he's done for us in Christ and continues to do and is committed to do for us in the future in Christ. And then, perhaps most easily, we think of prayer as expressing our needs before him, the desires of our hearts, whether that be for ourselves, which is so obvious when we're in distress and difficulty, we're asking him for whatever it may be, our daily bread, the money that we need to pay the rent, or help in this challenge of life, or 
or when our kid gets terribly sick or when we lose someone, we're crying out to him in distress or praying for others. In terms of intercession, which is a particularly Christ-like aspect of our relationship with God, it's intercessory. We're asking for spiritual blessings for others, for their salvation, for their spiritual protection and growth, their sanctification, their continuance in grace. We're praying for secular magistrates, as we're commanded to do in Scripture, praying for the advancement of God's kingdom, good of his church across the world, things like that. I think those are some of the aspects of prayer. So these are the things that we do in prayer. There's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. ACTS is that handy acronym. So we know what we're doing in these various things, but when we think of prayer in its aggregate, we still haven't defined it. We've characterized it. We've looked at various aspects of it. But is there a short definition of prayer? Prayer is our expression of our longings for God from our side of things. Hmm. What is the relationship between prayer and communion with God? Okay, so it's our response to God. Yeah. Heidelberg 117 is helpful, too, and it's similar to what you were just saying. The question asks, what are the requisites of that prayer which is acceptable to God and which he will hear? First, that we, from the heart, pray to the one true God. So prayer is directed, is communication directed at the God who is. So not everything that everyone says to God is necessarily prayer, who has manifested himself in his word, for all things he has commanded us to ask of him. Secondly, that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery. So true prayer comes from people who, as you already implied, right, when you were talking about crying out to God, comes from people who know their need, particularly not just their practical need, although salvation is the most practical need, but people who know the greatness of their sin and misery and their helplessness. So we may deeply humble ourselves in the presence of his divine majesty, which seems to me an essential aspect of prayer, in order to ask something of someone or to begin with praise of someone, as we often do, and and rightly so, in prayer. It's a fundamental recognition that he is God, we are not. So the first thing that we do as we enter into prayer is to bow the head and to bring ourselves before God. Then it goes on to talk about recognizing his divine majesty. Thirdly, that we be fully persuaded that he, notwithstanding that we are unworthy of it, will, for the sake of Christ our Lord, certainly hear our prayer as he has promised us in his word. So prayer is an expression of faith, right? You can't call on God unless you believe that he is. We were talking before the interview, before we were on air, about the utility of the confession in the Westminster Confession, the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms, how helpful they are for summarizing so much of biblical teaching on this. But when you think about Scripture and prayer, what are some of the passages, biblical passages, that have shaped your understanding of prayer? The two things that first jump out to mind are our Lord's instruction in prayer, the Lord's prayer, that his disciples, as they lived with him and they saw how intensely devoted he was to prayer, that he, as a man, despite his divinity as God and his resources in that sense, he felt his need 
of God's guidance and the Father's blessing, the Spirit's presence and anointing on everything that he did, his need for guidance and and unction, to such an extent that he was continually devoted himself to prayer, and his disciples were impressed by that, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray on a number of occasions, it seems, and he gives them in the, a number of texts, Matthew 6 being most uh, famous, the Lord's Prayer as a guide for prayer. And I think coming back to that from time to time in my Christian life and teaching through that or preaching through that has been particularly helpful, both in terms of the horizontal aspect of prayer and the vertical, that ultimately we're praying that God would manifest himself, who he is, his name, the advancement of his kingdom, his interests, and then the horizontal, that all the things that we stand in need of that he would graciously provide for us, including helping us to do his will and forgiving us our sins and sustaining us and protecting us from our our greatest enemy, who is Satan himself, if we had any idea of the danger that we stand in continually in terms of temptation to sin and satanic attack, just how weak we are and exposed, left to ourselves. We, we see that. We, Luther had a great sense of that in his A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We have precious little sense of that today. We're very secularized, and it's one of the reasons we, we rarely pray. We don't feel the need for it, but as we sense our need, we're looking to him for that, asking him to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one, and that this is a profound and very helpful guide also a very practical guide when we, we, we sit to pray or we, we kneel to pray or stand to pray and we say, what do we pray? Well, this can be a helpful guide to us in our daily prayers and our public prayers as well. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Have you ever been exposed to the teaching or the suggestion that somehow the Lord's Prayer is sort of so basic that real mature Christians need to sort of move beyond that? And if, if someone suggested that to you, how would you respond in, in light of what you just said about the virtues and the utility of the Lord's Prayer? Perhaps during the time that I spent in the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements, the tendency among some was a suspicion of set prayers, any reliance or dependence on formula or structure in helping us pray was a token of a lack of spirituality. Spontaneity was uh, extraordinarily highly valued to the detriment of form in prayer, premeditation in prayer. That was a problem, not not in the case of everyone that I knew, but in, in the case of some. And yet, when the disciples needed to know how to pray, or when they wanted to know how to pray, they asked the Lord, which is the right thing to do, right? When you need something, want something, lack something, the best place to go is to the Lord. And so they did, and he responded with a pattern. And it seems to be, in so doing, there is an implicit recognition of human frailty, because even when we seek to be genuinely spontaneous, and I've been in a lot of services that valued that sort of spontaneity, ostensibly, yet over time one discerns a sort of pattern that emerges, and that what initially seemed like genuine spontaneity was in fact part of an, an established pattern. So it's not really a question of whether we're going to follow a pattern in prayer, but whether we're going to follow a pattern that's disguised as spontaneity right. or whether we're going to follow a pattern that was given to us to meet our weakness by our Lord himself. I think that's fair. There can often be informal expectations of prayers. And it becomes a kind of an unspoken liturgy, or 
even an unspoken formula of prayers. It's good for us, by the way, to step back from our own prayer patterns from time to time and even to think about them. This is such a simple thing, especially those of our listeners who are ministers or aspiring to ministry or those who lead in regular public prayer. Something as simple as the word just. I, Lord, we just ask that we just, we thank, we just thank you that we just, the use of the little, little word just is, uh, it's good to think about. Crutches. That's exactly what it is. We always pray when we eat together, but particularly on the Lord's Day after church. I'm conscious of the fact that I have used the same language repeatedly in that prayer for years. I'm aware of it, and I've struggled to try to sort of break out of some of those things so that it wouldn't become rote. And yet, there it is. There are those patterns. One of the other things that I heard as a young Christian about prayer is that it is a conversation. And I remember reading a book that explicitly made the case that not only in prayer should we speak to the Lord, but that we should be quiet, listen for, and not exactly audible, but a kind of ongoing revelation, a direct response from the Lord in prayer. And I suspect that I'm not the only one who has been taught to listen for, as we used to say, the still small voice of God in prayer. How do you think about that and Where do you come out on that? That is a subject of no small controversy in the evangelical churches, obviously. And it's one of the dividing points in the road between confessional reformed churches and spirituality and certain other forms of spirituality, that if we believe that God has given us his full and final revelation in Christ, which has been inscripturated in not only the Older Testament, but now the New Testament, we have the full and complete Word of God focusing on Christ in those documents. What more can he say than to you he hath said, as the old hymn has it, then we're not looking to God for some personal word that's whispered in the back of my mind as I kneel to pray. And I think this is a wonderfully freeing truth, that we are no longer under the pressure to hear some or to imagine some voice in our inner mind, but we are free to express ourselves to God in accordance with the principles of his word and express our honest hearts before him, and we look to his part of the conversation to come to us through the word of God as we read it, as we meditate on it, as we hear it preached from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. We're not caught up in what is essentially, it seems to me, a type of bondage that, that we're, we're telling people to expect something that God hasn't promised to them. And that's a, that's a cruel thing to do to someone. It's not as if God hasn't spoken, right? So we're not saying that God doesn't speak. We're not saying that he hasn't spoken. We're not even saying that it's not, in some sense, a dialogue. But we are raising questions about the often made claim about where we look or where we listen for the voice of God. This language of the still small voice is from the authorized version of the King James translation of 1 Kings 19, verse 12. It says, And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still small voice. And that language has often been used as a basis for this doctrine of listening for direct personal revelation to the Christian. And yet, if we look at the passage in its context, there's no indication in that passage that is why 
that passage is there or that there's any intent in that passage to teach Christians to listen for a still small voice. Indeed. We have now, of course, Paul in Romans 8 talks about the Spirit helping us to pray, since we don't know how to pray as we should, that there is something mysterious about prayer. Prayer is not something that can simply be memorized as a formula. It's, it's an ongoing part of a person's relationship with God. And there's something experiential, something, if we carefully define it, something mystical that goes on there. There is a, a communion, right? Surely. When we are, are quiet before the Lord and when we are praying as we have been taught in Scripture, there is an aspect of communion. And there is mystery. We're not excluding mystery from prayer. But we're not including things, as you already have said, that Christ hasn't promised, right? Precisely. I think many Christians have found that during prayer, they may have the experience of God pressing some principle from his word or something they've heard in a sermon coming from the scripture or some, some ethical principle or principle of wisdom to guide them where their path might become more clear or there might be some scriptural light shed on a particular situation or some insight or some breakthrough in prayer, which is a wonderful thing when God gives it. But that's different from expecting a fresh and extra scriptural additional information or a new revelation from God, which we traditionally call that enthusiasm. It's looking beyond scripture for new revelation, which is a dangerous practice. There is a kind of sweetness when that happens, when things become clear, when the Spirit brings to mind even a passage of Scripture or some principle, some truth, and we see ourselves, we see our situation, we see God more clearly in Christ, all of those wonderful things. In that light, prayer should be very attractive, and it should be something that we want to do, desire to do. Indeed, in some respects, if we think of prayer as a way of communing with God, who is our Creator, our Redeemer, our Sustainer, He is the one whom we trust implicitly, who never fails us. And yet, the truth is, for most Christians, I think, prayer is a real struggle. So why is that, Charles? Probably many reasons for that, but I think it's because we don't believe. An appropriate prayer is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, as the man said to Jesus, that if we believed the promises of God, that he would do great things in response to our prayers, we would be much quicker to pray. If we believed that it is God who numbers the hairs on our heads and who guides the life or death of the sparrows, and who gives us everything that we stand in need of, that it comes from God. If we believe these things and we saw our true dependence on God, that we would be quicker to turn to God. I think we disbelieve in God's goodness. We doubt that he's willing or able to give us what we stand in need of. Of course, we remind ourselves with that in the very first phrase of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, that he is not only in heaven and has all ability to give us whatever we stand in need of, no matter how radical or desperate the situation for ourselves or for other Christians or the church may be in. Nevertheless, simultaneously, he is our Father, that he actually is committed to our welfare unfailingly and passionately. It's because we don't believe these things. So our lack of faith is a principal reason why we don't pray. 
Another is, as part of that, we're so secularized that if you think of prayer from a purely secular worldly point of view, it looks absurd at first blush that you're going to take time out of your busy schedule where for this period of time you could be doing something, actually making a difference, and you're going to withdraw that from your schedule, either for public prayer or for private prayer, and you're going to speak to a being who is not visible, who seems not to be there. You're taking away from what can make a difference, it seems, and you're giving it to something that doesn't make a difference. It seems absurd. What, are you talking to the wall? And I think we can fall into that, that we, we just don't see, because we don't believe, the difference that prayer can make. And yet, as you started by underlining the Heidelberg Catechism, it's in response to prayer that God is committed to act. He's committed to save those who call out to him. All those who call out and only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that our very salvation itself depends on prayer. We are to ask and he'll give. If we don't ask, he doesn't give. Preaching is so important because it's foolish, according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. It is a real temptation to think of the world as a closed box, with ourselves on the inside and God if he's out there on the outside. But that's a profoundly pagan way of thinking. It's certainly not a biblical way of thinking, is it? So perhaps the chief struggle of prayer is our own unbelief. And perhaps too, do you think it's our relative lack of willingness to humble ourselves before the Lord and bow the head and say, not I, Lord, I am not sovereign, you are sovereign. And so I'm going to admit my inability, and I'm going to call on you. How much of our struggle to pray and our struggle in prayer is rooted in that real basic struggle with sin or sinfulness? Much, it seems to me, that if in our natural state we are pagan by nature, we fall into a pagan attitude towards prayer. What is prayer from a classic pagan point of view? And that is that prayer is an attempt to manipulate the divinity, whatever that may be, to get the gods or the god to do what I want. So I'm going to say certain words or do certain things in order to get God to give me what I'm looking for. But this is foundationally foreign to what the scriptures teach, that God is in control of all things and that actually our prayers are simply a part of his sovereign rule of all things. So we are to pray, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, thy name be hallowed. This is the essential thing. It's not getting God to do what we want. It's bringing our own desires and wills and focus in life in line with what he wants. That's always our prayer. Lord, in, in whatever situation it may be, even if my parent is dying or my child is in a terrible situation, Lord, what you want in this situation, not what I want. Glorify yourself in the midst of the situation for life or for death, for healing or for sickness, for poverty or for prosperity. 
So there's a real antithesis between genuinely Christian prayer and a lot of what passes for Christian prayer. There is an approach to God out there which is known as the name-it-and-claim-it view of prayer and piety. And you very nicely summarized the antithesis between those two things. The roots of the name-it-and-claim-it idea are really not in Scripture at all, even if people may invoke passages of Scripture to justify it. The roots of it are really, and you tell me if I'm being too strong here, are in, as you, I think, implied in classical paganism, that God is a being whom we, if we use the right magic formulation, can manipulate into doing what we want. I think that's fair. The problem is in ourselves, that we are so self-absorbed. We have this, the old nature, we can call it the pagan nature, and kind of man-made religion is a pagan religion. That's why we see such continuity between classical paganism and modern paganism, whether that may be kind of African traditional religion or New Age thinking around here in Southern California or wherever it may be. It's this self-absorption and seeking to manipulate the forces that are out there for my own interests, for my own good. I think that should profoundly put fear in all of our hearts that we are all susceptible to a perverted form of religion by nature. How much more desperate we are then for the correction of the scriptures, that God himself would tell us who he is, how we relate to him, and even how we're to pray to him. Otherwise, we so quickly go astray. Sometimes it's said that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Holy Trinity. And yet he has an essential role to play in prayer. Sometimes we even say the Holy Spirit helping us. How does the Spirit help the believer in the act of praying? Wonderful question. I'm sure this is an adequate response. But he stirs in us holy affections. He convinces us of the truth of what God has promised, that he is the author of our faith, that Christ through the Spirit is the, is the author and the finisher of our faith, that the Spirit effectively causes us to believe and stirs us to lay hold of the promises of God. Lord, you've said you would provide for my daily bread, for you said you would provide your God to me and to my seed after me. Lord, show yourself faithful to my children. He convinces us of what God has spoken and enables us then to pray. He convicts us of our sin. He's the one who convicts the world of unrighteousness, and he becomes the comforter as he enables us to believe the promises of the gospel and to apply them to ourselves. I think those are a few ways in which the Spirit helps us in prayer. In Romans 8, starting in verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, there are challenges in this passage, but this should be an encouragement, right, for the Christian who, if he is doubting that he knows how to pray, can take solace in the fact that the Apostle Paul preceded him in the struggle. And the Apostle Paul also took comfort in the help of the Holy Spirit in the act of prayer. Absolutely. We should also not neglect, and this is the second passage of Scripture. You, you asked me about two passages of Scripture earlier that have been particularly helpful, one being the Lord's Prayer. The other being the largest book in the Bible is a book that is focused on prayer. 
Matter of fact, it's called prayer, prayers in the Hebrew Bible, that the Psalter is the book of prayers that were directly inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we cheat ourselves if we don't make use of these words that the Spirit gave to the church to pray. So from the time when these compositions were penned from early days, the prayer of Moses following, God's people have had words that express their hearts, their relationship to God, their doubts, their need to confess their sins and humble themselves, their perplexities, their questionings of God, their praises of God, and their petitions to God. We have words for all of this and so much more in this prayer book. The Psalter is the prayer book of God's people and should be frequently turned to for help in our prayers. When you say Psalter, just to be perfectly clear, so the listener understands without any doubt, we're talking about the book of Psalms, the 150 Psalms, so that God gave us those Psalms to pray. And there's a Psalm for every possible human experience, it would seem, in the Psalms. If someone is doubting, there's a Psalm for that. If someone is rejoicing, there's a Psalm for that. If someone is grieving, there's a psalm for that. If someone is questioning, if someone is upset about an injustice, there's a psalm for that. Now, of course, we read those psalms through the filter of, or in light of, their fulfillment in Christ, but it's God's Word, right? I think you make a very good point that it is the divinely inspired prayer book given by God for us. Absolutely. There are untold millions of Christians who have experienced the helpfulness of the Psalms, the Psalter, in their, not only their public prayers, but in their private prayers, that praying a Psalm a day, you can work through the Psalter in five months. And often the Psalms become a kind of priming of the pump to get you praying, to exalt your thoughts and feelings, to provoke you to faith and to pray to God boldly with confidence and with rejoicing, whereas maybe your tendency would be to come depressed and discouraged and crestfallen and unbelieving to your prayers any particular day. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Earlier, you said something that I think is very significant, and it provides a sort of structure for our discussion, and that is we pray to God as Father, and we've already noted that the Holy Spirit helps us, And there is a third Trinitarian person active in our prayers, and that is God the Son, who is interceding for us. How does the knowledge and conviction that Christ is our intercessor, our mediator, help us in prayer? We as Christians have a habit of saying, in Jesus' name. We can use the expression, or the world uses the expression, for Christ's sake, as a profanity. But the expression, for Christ's sake, is the most precious possible thing we could ever say. That's why it's a profanity to use it casually. Prayer is a priestly act. We see prayers pictured in the final book of Scripture as the offering of incense. What an incredible privilege that in the Old Testament time there were certain people who were priests. Now we are all priests in Christ. And as we pray, we pray for Christ's sake and in Christ's name that he our representative, our older brother, he who has gone before us to prepare a living and a new way, he who reconciles us to the Father at the cost of his own priestly suffering and through the the virtue, the power of his own 
and the effective entrance of his own priestly mediation, he who presents his own blood on our behalf and who prays for us, we then pray in his name and our prayers, which are always tainted, even in the best of us, the most faithful of us. Our prayers are always tainted with some kind of impure motive, some kind of unbelief, some kind of imperfection, that he presents our prayers and they are utterly acceptable to God, and God receives us as righteous and responds to us in Christ as his beloved, holy, righteous saints, and who gives us what we ask in accordance with his wise will. There's one more text that I think we should discuss, and that's Philippians 4.6. Talk about that a little bit and how that also encourages the Christian in the act of prayer and in becoming more prayerful. Well, the text says that we're not to be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think this is a constant struggle against anxiety, worry, fear, and the multitude of challenges that face us during the day and week by week. But what a wonderful invitation to turn these things back to God in prayer and to personally and consistently rely on Him in the face of these challenges. I heard a sermon recently that really struck me along these lines, and the application was put in these terms. Stop worrying and start expecting. And this is how we do that, that we stop our being consumed with the challenges or the thing that's making us afraid or anxious, and we turn to God and we commit this thing, this difficult person, this stressful situation, this challenge, this sin, whatever it may be, this heartache, we turn it to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, and we trust that he will work out this matter according to his own good purposes. And it's remarkable how... God gives us peace and enables us to move on in faith. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.